Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. 911, chances are you've dialed this at some point in your life when you or someone near you has needed help. But have you ever wondered how does it actually work? Today, where we live, we explore the 911 system both here in Connecticut and nationwide. With advances in technology, 911 is getting an overhaul so that one day we could send a text or video to 911 where dispatchers can read or see the message and then share that info with first responders. Connecticut and most other states aren't quite there yet, but there is a plan to overhaul the emergency response system. It's called Next Generation 911. This hour, we're going to learn all about it. And later in the hour, we'll hear from a startup that has reimagined the way we ask for help beyond just making a phone call. Have you called 911 recently? How did your experience go? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. You can comment on our website, wmpr.org, slash where we live. And as always, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. First, most cities and towns employ the people who answer 911 calls. In Danbury, dispatchers aren't actually city employees. They're paid by a private company. Danbury outsourced its 911 dispatch center last year so that fire and police department employer employees rather were no longer manning the lines. Danbury officials say it was done to make the system more efficient and, of course, save money. But recently there was a troubling incident involving the local 911 system there. On the phone with us now is Dirk Parafort, a breaking news reporter for the News Times in Danbury, Connecticut. Dirk, you're on Where We Live. Thanks for calling in. Uh, good morning. Thanks for having me. Can you walk us through that troubling incident? I he- I've heard that it involved a, a actual city officer by the name of Joe Pooler in late July. What happened? Uh, well, it occurred about 11 o'clock uh, in the evening on July 30th. Uh, the officer was approached by an individual while he was in his cruiser. Uh, he felt that the individual needed assistance, uh, so he got out of his cruiser, and uh, the individual started to uh, essentially attack him. Uh, the individual, the police officer, was left with a broken jaw, a concussion, and uh, was pretty viciously attacked at the time. And so what was the response um, when that attack was happening? I mean, who called for help? Was he able to let, um, you know, his fellow officers know that he was being attacked at the time? Uh, unfortunately, he wasn't able to get to his radio during the attack, uh, but there was a witness who saw the attack and called 911 in an attempt to get officers uh, to the scene to assist him. And from your article, it appeared that there were some issues in the time of that response. What happened when that bystander called um, 911, and how soon was help um, able to, to be uh, sent to Officer Pooler? Uh, well, we did receive a copy of the 911 tape uh, late last week, and um, while the union claims that it was uh, as close to two minutes before help was dispatched out, uh, IXP Corporation, the New Jersey-based company that operates the center, uh, claims it was probably closer to about 32 seconds. Um, when you do listen to the 911 tape and you listen to the witness, uh, it is probably about four and a half minutes uh, through the call uh, while she's watching the attack until you see uh, police officers arrive on the scene. 
So the union was was the first to raise concerns that the response was not um, fast enough. And and are they pointing the finger at this uh, private company that operates Dispatch? Uh, yeah, they're saying um, that this is kind of the tip of the iceberg, that they've been having a lot of problems uh, with IXP since it was uh, first introduced in, uh, I believe, February 2015 is when it first went live in Danbury. And what has been the response from city officials to the union's uh, concern? Uh, some city officials claim that the union is trying to get back into the dispatch center. Um, obviously, it was manned by union officials private to the prior to the privatization. Um, they think that um, you know the response times weren't that bad at that point, and they're pointing their fingers at a GPS system that failed that evening also, so that dispatchers weren't able to see where Officer Poole was located at the time. Um, Dirk, can we talk a little bit more about the history of, of the dispatch in the city of Danbury? Um, I, I'd heard again that the um, the new 911 dispatch center had opened recently, um, but before that, police and fire department officials were still um, answering the 911 calls? Uh, yes, that's correct. It was still police officers and firefighters who were manning the actual uh, 911 dispatch center, uh, which is one of the reasons why city officials, including Mayor Mark Bowen, uh, particularly pushed to have it privatized. Uh, there was a regionalization effort at that point, but that kind of fell flat as other towns were concerned about losing local control of their dispatch and losing that local institutional knowledge on the phones. Um, if uh, local towns are not interested in this regional idea of a dispatch, I mean, does that mean that it's not, it hasn't saved the city of Danbury as much money as they'd hoped? Uh, well, uh, Bowton claims that they're hoping to save about a million dollars on it annually at this point. And uh, one of the other pieces that he was most concerned with as well is that it puts more officers on the streets. Uh, officers who were manning dispatch can now be put on patrol. Uh, the city had a big issue with overtime costs for years leading into this privatization with upwards of $1.5 million uh, annually in overtime costs uh, due to uh, needing more people on the streets. And what about local residents um, in the city of Danbury? I mean, how are they feeling about how the, the dispatch center has operated in the past year since it was privatized? And I'm um, just curious, I and mean, we know that the union is unhappy, of course. Yeah, to be honest with you, I haven't heard a lot of complaints from civilians at this point um, about the matter. Um, you know, I think some of the problems that the union are bringing out are just kind of coming to light now, and uh, we'll kind of see how they react to it as things progress. And I, I know we should probably ask, I mean, how Officer Poehler is doing. Uh, it said that he's doing well. I know I spoke with somebody on Friday who had just seen him the day before. They said he's home resting. Um, you know, obviously he has his jaw wired shut, and he's, uh, you know, it's going to take some time to recover from his injuries. But I know everybody is looking forward to him uh, returning to the job. I'm talking with uh, Dirk Parafort, breaking news reporter for the News Times in Danbury, Connecticut. I wanted to find out more, Dirk, about the company, the private company that actually. Um, operates the dispatch center, but then hires local residents to work in the dispatch. Can you tell us about them at all? Uh, well, IXP came in. It was a bidding process uh, a couple of years ago. I think there were five or six companies that bid. Uh, IXP won out and uh, came in. Um, I know they operate dispatch centers uh, in other regions of the United States, and they, um, you know, some people claim that they're concerned about the uh, amount of money that they pay the dispatchers, although city officials have said that they've examined that and they think that's kind of uh, middle of the road as far as what they're getting in the industry these days. Uh, that was one of the concerns in terms of potential turnover of people uh, 
working the station. And so um, has there been a lot of turnover? There is, from what I've heard at this point, I think there's only a handful of the original uh, people who were hired a year and a half ago who were left. Uh, and they say they also have a full-time training person on um, each shift um, to help with the transition of new people coming in. All right. Well, Dirk Paraford, again, thank you for your time, breaking news reporter for the News Times in Danbury. Um, in studio with uh, me are two dispatchers and who have experience uh, working um, in uh, the, both the city of Hartford and also the town of, of Berlin. I wanted to turn to Tammy Wright, dispatcher for the Berlin uh, Police Department. I know you've been doing this for some time now. Yes, it'll be 21 years. Actually, it just was 21 years, July 3rd. So we were listening to um, the Danbury reporter talk about uh, why that city chose to privatize um, and their dispatch center. But if can you give us an idea of, of who are the people that are working um, at the town of Berlin dispatch center when, when they call 911 looking for help? We have nine full-time employees, three for each shift, days, evenings, and midnights. So you have a range from, I know that he had said, um, I don't know when they started, but there is a very high turnover rate in communications in general. So I don't know if it's that company or if it's just, you know, any dispatch center in general would have a very high turnover rate. We have people from, I think I've been there the longest, I'm the old guy for 21 years. And we have, I think anywhere a range from two years on the job to the 21 years on the job. So it is definitely a high turnover rate. We've been pretty lucky lately that we have hired people and we've been able to keep them for a long time. And you mentioned high turnover because of the stress of the job? It's an extremely stressful job. It's also, I think, in part because of shift work, because you are working a rotating shift or you're working just a midnight shift, and that's pretty hard for some people. So when we call 911, the people that are answering that phone call in our uh, local town or city, I'll turn that question now to Clayton uh, Northgraves, Director of Emergency Services and Telecommunications at the City of Hartford, who's also joining us. So when we call, is it mostly is it all civilians who, who are taking those phone calls? Yes, in the City of Hartford, it is all civilian dispatch. There are no sworn people in the dispatch center. And that's the way it's been for some time? Um, as far as I know, I think it's been that way for about 10 years, maybe a little bit longer. And Tammy, um, you were listening to, uh, again, the reporter out of Danbury talking about um, the the people that are hired. And is salary an issue or is it depending on, is it something where they're saving money because they may have gone to a private company, the city's saving money, but for um, towns and cities, I mean, are people paid pretty well or, or is it just the stress of the job that leads to turnover? I think, I'm sure salary may come a part of it in some places. Every place is different as far as what they pay. There's no set amount, and every town gets the same. So I think that what people um, relate dispatchers and communication centers with a lot of times are secretarial positions, and that's not what we are. Uh, we make split-second decisions on saving somebody's life, so that's definitely not something that's a secretarial position. There's excuse me, <clears throat> there's a lot of stress that comes involved with that. So, And I'd imagine you have to really know the, the area, uh, the local streets, uh, when someone's calling for help? You do. You have to know your town. You have to know surrounding towns. Um, there's so much that you have to remember that goes into this job. It's not just the dispatching of police, dispatching of fire. You have to make sure that you have good interview and interrogation skills over the phone to get all the information the officer needs that you can dispatch you know, let him know so he can get basically a picture before he arrives on scene. 
So you, again, work for the town of Berlin. Uh, Clayton, uh, you're with the, the city of Hartford. Obviously, a city, you must get a lot of calls. What kind of calls is on a typical day? Um, so we, uh, in 2015, we, we processed about 160,000 911 calls, and that's in addition to the administrative calls that we receive also. We receive about double that a year in administrative calls. So administrative calls are non-emergency number, people calling in uh, low-priority calls such as dog barking, noise complaints, things of that nature. Uh, but my dispatchers are very busy. We're one of the busiest municipal dispatch centers in the state. And, uh, and as Tammy said, we're not just answering 911. We're also dispatching police, fire, and ambulance as well. So it, and it's a high-stress job. The dispatchers give up their time, you know, on the holidays and on weekends to be with their family to serve the public. And uh, they deserve high wages, and they deserve, um, you know, to be treated uh, as any public safety professional. And what kind of training uh, do your dispatchers get? So my dispatchers train probably similar to Tammy's for about nine months. Uh, most of it is on-the-job training. So a little bit of classroom time and then about, uh, you know, eight months of, uh, of on-the-job training. And it's, it's highly specialized and it's highly skilled as well. And how many dispatchers do you have? We have about 40 on staff right now. And I also have six full-time supervisors as well. For the um, size of the city of Hartford, is that enough? Um, it's never enough. Uh, we, uh, we do manage, and we manage very well. But as Tammy knows, we get spikes in call volume with the proliferation of cell phones. When there's a car accident or a fire or something that's highly visible to the public, uh, we get in inundated with 911 calls. And sometimes even with 10 people on staff, it can exceed the, the center's capabilities. So it is, it's a difficult and challenging field. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're looking at the 911 system. We have two uh, uh, people who have experience in dispatch. Tammy Wright, a dispatcher for the Berlin Police Department in Berlin, Connecticut. Also, Clayton Northgraves, Director of Emergency Services and Telecommunications at the City of Hartford. When we come back from the break, we're actually going to look at the updates happening to our emergency response system here in Connecticut. The new system is known as Next Generation 911. We're going to learn all about it. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about 911. We rely on the emergency response system for all kinds of incidents, but the current system is antiquated. Why? Over the last 40 years, the system was built to respond to landline calls. Now, according to a federal report, the majority of calls come from cell phones. New technology called Next Generation or Next Gen 911 is being implemented in states like Connecticut that will allow dispatchers to not only read and see text and video messages for help, but also possibly pinpoint the exact location of the person needing help. Sounds pretty good, but we wanted to find out more from local dispatchers about how the current system works and their thoughts on NextGen 911 here in Connecticut. In studio with me is Tammy Wright, dispatcher for the Berlin Police Department in Berlin, and Clayton Northgraves, director of emergency services and telecommunications at the city of Hartford. Have you ever thought about how 911 worked for you? What was your experience like? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Again, 860-275-7266. Clayton, uh, before the break, you were telling me about um, the personnel who work uh, within the city of Hartford emergency dispatch and the amount of training they get. But I'm curious about the technology at your fingertips. Can you describe to people when they call 911 um, how that then filters on to your uh, staff? Sure. So depending on where you are in the city of Hartford, you might reach the state police. 
So if you're in close proximity to a highway, then you'll receive uh, a state police dispatch center. Um, so they handle all police calls on the highway, so they get the first 911 call. Um, and if it is something that, that warrants a city of Hartford response, be it a fire or medical, then they will transfer the call to us. But most of the 911 calls in the city of Hartford go right to a city of Hartford uh, 911 operator. And uh, as I said before, we're a very busy center, so they're fielding many, many calls uh, every hour. And uh, so the call comes in, essentially answered by a highly skilled uh, 911 operator. The call is entered into what we call a computer-aided dispatch system. CAD system is what we call it in the field. And uh, that CAD system then routes it to an appropriate dispatcher. So if you have a medical emergency, the CAD system will uh, route it to an ambulance dispatcher. If it's a fire emergency, fire dispatcher. Or if a police emergency, it routes it to a police dispatcher. Or if it warrants some type of uh, combined response, it could route the, the incident to all three dispatchers. And the 911 operator will ask you your location, first and foremost, and your callback number. Those are two critical pieces of information that we need. And then the interrogation process starts. They ask you what the, what the problem is, what's going on, and then they triage the call. They assign it a priority, and they determine the resources that need to be sent to the call. You mentioned they ask for location and callback numbers. So when someone is calling 911 with the system that the city of Hartford and many places have in Connecticut, um, it's, it's not like you can see that phone number in front of you. And, and if it's a cell phone, you don't know where they're calling from? Sometimes we do get location data. Um, it's not always accurate. Um, and sometimes we do get, more often we do get, uh, it's similar to caller ID, we do get a caller ID number and we get some basic location data. Uh, but in Hartford, downtown Hartford, if you're in a high rise, we have no idea where you are, what floor you're on or anything like that. So it's, it's very basic data. And so you have what's considered the legacy system, a system that's been around for a few decades. That's correct. So I believe the system was implemented in 1990. All right, and then turning over to Tammy Wright, dispatcher for the Berlin Police Department. Um, again, you've been doing this now for 21 years? Yes. So you have experience with the legacy system. Talk to us about how it works for you in Berlin, and then this next-gen system that's being implemented. Um, what have you experienced so far? With the next-gen as well as the legacy, the mapping issues are the same. We haven't been able to... Um, narrow it down yet so that if you are in a high-rise or if you're in a multi-apartment building, it doesn't say, like, oh, they're on the second floor, left wing, or something like that. So we'll give an address. You do get the phone number. So all that information is pretty much the same. That hasn't changed as far as location. Um, there are some things with the system that has changed as we are able to get our contacts much easier. Contacts are just other phone numbers if I want to transfer it to the state police or another police department. It's just easier in the way that we have them now in the new system. I actually had a call yesterday or the day before, um, and I needed to transfer them to the Bronx, New York. With the legacy system, I couldn't do that. But with this one, if I Google the phone number, I'll be able to type it in, and I can send them over to the Bronx, which is definitely a new feature on the next Gen 901. Um, the texting to 901, that is behind the scenes in the process that has not come out yet, but this program will have the capability of doing that. Um, one of the reasons we did the show is we had um, heard about uh, with the implementation of NextGen 911, last month there was actually an outage at, yes. I think, 50-some call centers and, and dispatches. Every department that's on the 911, the NextGen. And that happened to the town of Berlin. Yes. So what happened that day? Uh, that day, which we hope never happens again, um, that day... 
I started seeing the 901 calls, but I wasn't able to answer them. And then I thought it was just us. So I, you were going to call. What we normally do is call another department. Are you up? You know, is your system working? Whatever. What we have in the state of Connecticut, it's called a hotline where police departments can talk to each other over the hotline, let you know if something is coming into your town or not. So we were able to utilize the hotline to pretty much tell everybody that we're down. And then you started hearing all these other departments saying that they were down as well. So then we realized it was everyone who had the new NextGen 901 system. So on my screen, what I was seeing is some phone calls coming in, but I wasn't able to answer them. And then our routine lines are integrated with our 901 system as well. So I wasn't able to answer our routine lines. We do have some backup plans. And in most departments and most centers, if you can see the phone number, we were calling from our personal cell phones just to contact that person to say, hey, we've got you, but our system's not working. Do you have an emergency or something like that? So we were able to reach out. In my department, um, we were completely down for maybe like 15, 20 minutes, and then it was intermittent. So I was able to use the system, and then I wasn't, then I was. It was very random. There were some calls that were, or some call centers that were down completely. Some were up right away, and they didn't deal with the intermittent stuff. So it was very random. So thank God you had your personal cell phone. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking about the 911 response system here in Connecticut and plans to upgrade it to what's being called NextGen 911. I wanted to bring into the conversation Bill Yule. He's director of the Division of Statewide Emergency Telecommunications. Bill, you're on Where We Live. Good morning. So tell us a little bit more about NextGen and a little bit about the outage. Uh, what's happening now with uh, with the upgrades? Sure. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Uh, regarding Next Generation 911, as you mentioned earlier, the system that we have today is, is the legacy system is, is antiquated. It's hard to get parts for it. And so there was a process underway several years ago to replace it. We're replacing it with the with the industry standard, which is Next Generation 911. And some of the features we'll get with that system include text to 911, which we anticipate next year uh, that we'll be rolling out in Connecticut. And in the future, it, we're building a platform to carry other services, which include photos, video, and even uh, automatic crash notification. Those services aren't ready yet. Um, they're, they're dependent upon the carriers. It's, but uh, they'll be, we'll be building the platform so when they are ready, we'll have the uh, services, we'll have the network ready to accept them. Regarding the outage, um, first of all, I want to reassure your listeners and all of the residents of Connecticut that the system is stable. It's functioning normally, um, and it was as of 9 p.m. on, on July 15th. Uh, the safety of the public uh, is obviously paramount to us. We've got a very long history providing reliable 911 service to the state. And, and frankly, we intend to maintain that standard. The outage, um, the cause of the outage, as described uh, to us from AT&T, who was our vendor, there was a system capacity threshold that was met. And this caused memory to be used up in the system, and it resulted in intermittent failures in the delivery of 911 calls. And some, some PSAPs saw different, uh, different symptoms. But as Tammy mentioned, uh, you know, one of them was obviously calls, calls came up, but they could not be answered. And, uh, and how has that been remedied? So the, that evening, uh, ATT fixed the problem. Uh, they resolved the memory problem that evening, and uh, that, was, that, that gave us enough headroom in the system to support uh, the PSAPs that are up and working on the next generation side. And then there's a permanent software upgrade planned for next week to correct the capacity issue. 
And so once that software update happens, so the the next-gen upgrade will then continue? Yes, but we're going to be very pragmatic about it and make sure that everything works according to uh, AT&T uh, to the upgrade. And um, once we know everything is fine, we'll continue uh, the deployment of the next-generation system. That's Bill Yule, director of the Division of Statewide Emergency Telecommunications. I wanted to bring into the conversation Brian Fonts. He is CEO of the National Emergency Number Association. Uh, Brian, thanks for calling in to where we live. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to join your program and and particularly for this segment dealing with 911 and next generation 911. Can you explain to us uh, the necessity of why um, Connecticut and other states need uh, next gen 911? In large part, next generation 911 moves the whole systems of 911 into the 21st century. Just as most of your listeners have smart wireless devices, smartphone devices, they will operate on advanced networks. Uh, frequently referred to as IP networks. In addition to that, many of the other forms of communication are all transforming to internet protocol systems. 911, however, stuck in last century's technology, and next generation 911 is moving it into that 21st, I, 21st century IP system. So it's critically important that the link between the consumer, the 911 center, and ultimately the first responders all be on the same level of advanced technology. Uh, uh, Bill, uh, Bill, could you give, I'm sorry, Brian, could you give us an, um, some scenarios of when, um, of how NextGen could help when we look at uh, sure. things that are going on around the world where, you know, text to 911 would be something we would want to have on our phones that would work? Sure. There are many benefits to next generation 911 once it's fully deployed. Uh, most importantly, you'll be able to be able to create virtual 911 centers in the event of an outage or man-made or natural disasters creating problems, you'll be able to move those calls seamlessly to those centers that are working. Uh, Vermont had a situation where they had a hurricane go through their state and their 911 system worked fine even though one or two of their centers went out. The opportunity to route calls to the most appropriate 911 center is a function feature of next generation 911. So you no longer will have to route calls to one center and then maybe have that center transferred to another center and so forth. So that creates a savings of time, and in emergencies, time is critical. And then the opportunity to provide texting and advanced uh, multimedia texting will also be available in the next generation 911 environment. The ability to use mapping beyond just the local maps or the county maps will be available in in the next generation 911 environment, you'll be able to share mapping data among a number of 911 centers. So it's more efficient, more effective in terms of providing service to the public. Uh, Brian, we have two dispatchers in studio with us. I'll, I'll turn to Clayton Hargraves, who works for, or Northgraves rather, who works for the Department of Emergency Services and Telecommunications uh, for the city of Hartford. Uh, Clayton, you were nodding your head uh, when, when um, Brian was talking about all the different, um, I guess, uh, uh, characteristics that this new system will have. I mean, how do you see that helping you do your job? So this is a game changer in our field. Uh, right now, we're very limited, uh, as Brian and both Bill were saying. 
the system is very limited in its capacity. I mean, as you indicated earlier, three quarters of our call volume are mobile calls, and we just the system was not built for mobile calls. And as I mentioned earlier, we quickly get inundated. So to have that virtual center, to have those calls routed to less busy centers, so people can get their their calls answered quickly, is invaluable. It's uh, extremely valuable to our organization and our field. Bill Yule, director of the Division of Statewide Emergency Telecommunications. Bill, I was curious, um, you know, how does Connecticut stack up with other states in terms of upgrading to NextGen 911? We heard Brian mention uh, Vermont. Um, I think they have their system up and running. Um, so is Connecticut on track? Yeah, we are, uh, I would consider ourselves an early adopter. There are several states that have deployed, and certainly in other states where county government is um, is the structure. There are counties in other states that are beginning to deploy um, next generation 911. But I'd say we were certainly early earlier on the list of of, adopt, of adoption. And what's the cost? Um, our our system uh, was procured approximately 13.2 million dollars, and it and it's about three million dollars per year for maintenance. I know we have lots of different surcharges on our cell phone bills. Is any of that coming uh, from our uh, bills for our cell phones helping for upgrades to the 911 system across the country? Well, the, the way our, our structure works here is we have a 911 surcharge that applies in Connecticut to every wireline and wireless um, cell, uh, or I should say every phone. Um, and so the carriers charge it on your phone bill, and then we... Um, that money is, is uh, submitted. We have a budget that we submit to the Public Utilities Regulatory Authority every year. They set the rate, and that's currently at $0.47, cents, and the rate moves within the legislative cap of $0.75, cents, depending on the need. So when we were ready to procure the system, uh, we, we added that into our budget over a two-year period, and that increased the rate. At one point, we were at $0.60 cents per, per line, and now it's back to 47 and the cost for other states, I mean, is it pretty much standard? I don't have a lot of information. It's accessible. I don't have it in front of me, but um, I, would, I would presume that uh, it's, it's, in, it's uh, on par with other states. We're different here in that we're, we are a statewide system. Not every state in the country is structured that way, so it's, it's sometimes difficult to compare where there's a county government structure. That might be a better question for Brian in terms of how states are, are paying for this upgrade. Is the federal government helping at all? Uh, the federal government is not particularly helpful when it comes to funding uh, Next Generation 911. Since 2000, uh, the year 2000, the federal government has contributed roughly about $158 million to various Next Generation 911 programs to help get it started. And this compares with in excess of 7 to $10 billion that they have provided for public safety radio communication systems. Now, I, I certainly believe that our public safety uh, partners need their radio systems, but it would be great if the federal government were to help out in the, what I call the CapEx, the initial investment necessary to, um, to build a system. And uh, Brian, you heard earlier that Connecticut had an outage um, as part of uh, part of the implementation of NextGen 911. Is that common? Uh, actually, it isn't common. I mean, when you transition to new technology, inevitably you're going to have some hiccups along the way as you deploy the technology and, and work out the bugs. But it's just not all that typical uh, to have that type of uh, outage. 
So uh, it's good that it happened early on in the process. It's good that ATT identified the situation and provide the remedy for it. But I think more than just providing the remedy, I think it will keep everybody on heightened alert to ensure that the system operates to the maximum of its, its efficiencies. I want to compliment Bill and the state of Connecticut for deploying this. I think this is a phenomenal step in the right direction for your citizens. And can you give us an idea, Brian, um, about just how the technology works in the sense of so many of us use cell phones. And so when we call 911, uh, we were talking to the dispatchers earlier, they can't often uh, figure out uh, where the uh, person is located unless they ask. And so how will this next gen system be able to pinpoint a cell phone caller when they call 911? The location accuracy associated with 911 calls uh, particularly wireless 911 calls, is established under a separate proceeding at the FCC. What will be able to help out in the next generation 911 environment is once you get the lap long associated with that 911 call, the ability to have a very good mapping system. I think it was Tammy that mentioned earlier that they haven't brought the mapping system into the mix yet. But once that mapping system is in place and you have the lap long, it's going to be able to help you locate, at least in the horizontal axis, the FCC's rules, which will go into effect over the next, I think it is four or five years, will provide the vertical plane to help individuals uh, be located if they're in high-rise buildings or high-rise apartments and so forth. So the location aspect is is somewhat severable than next generation 911. However, the mapping aspect of next generation 911 will provide improved opportunities to locate individuals once you have that uh, longitude lat- latitude fix with that 911 wireless call. And Tammy, I wanted to turn back to you. Um, obviously, a lot of these features sound great to help mm-hmm. you and Clayton and his staff do the, uh, the job. Are you concerned at all about training and how quickly once NextGen is up? We heard Bill say that sometime next year, NextGen should be fully implemented. Will you have enough time to get up to speed with this new technology to do your job? We will. We use the system every day. So every day we're on the system, every day we're, you know, making sure that repetition is key. So every day we're making sure that if we don't understand something, we're using it every day over and over again. You quickly pick things up. The state has done a wonderful job, and AT&T has a lab. So before your department goes up with this new generation, next gen, the new 901 system from the legacy, every dispatcher is trained eight hours. The trainer there, Nancy, is wonderful. If you need more than that, she'll work with you. Administrators do get a couple of extra hours for some of the other features the system has, which is different than the legacy. You will like that. Um, So I think that the training isn't really a problem at all. I think that if we need more training as a department or as an individual, they they have been very helpful, and they are there to provide it for us. And Clayton, uh, why doesn't the city of Hartford, why isn't the city of Hartford part of this uh, pilot to implement um, this new system? So, uh, well, there are uh, approximately 100 or probably well over 100 911 centers in Connecticut, and there was a schedule. And um, when I first got to Hartford uh, just about uh, two years ago, we had a staffing problem. So I did I did speak with the state and uh, asked that we be placed farther down on the list until we can resolve some staffing issues, which has since been resolved. So the citizens of Hartford can rest easy knowing that there's a fully staffed 911 center. 
And then my last question, Bill Ewell, again, Director of the Division of Statewide Emergency Telecommunications. You mentioned NextGen will be up uh, by sometime next year. Does that mean um, all of these emergency dispatch centers around the state will have this technology? Yeah, our target is um, next year we will be fully deployed. Um, and it's just a matter of when this upgrade is completed and when we resume deployment. But that's the current target. We should be up on all 110 public safety entering points in Connecticut next year. I want to thank uh, Bill Yule, Director of the Division of Statewide Emergency Telecommunications. Also, Brian Fonce joined us by phone, CEO of the National Emergency Number Association. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. And also in studio with me are dispatchers Tammy Wright, who works for the Berlin Police Department. Also, Clayton Northgraves, Director of Emergency Services and Telecommunications at the City of Hartford. Thank you for coming in. Thank you. It's good to see a face behind uh, the people that are answering uh, the calls uh, when they need help. When we come back, a look at a local entrepreneur who came up with a novel idea to help people in emergency situations. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, as the oldest part of our country, New England has its share of historic house museums. But these famous living quarters aren't just about old dining rooms and fine china. We'll learn about how some museums are trying new and creative approaches to tell the stories of the past. That's tomorrow on Where We Live. Today, we've been focusing on the system that helps save lives, 911. But what happens when you're in a dangerous situation and you can't use your phone? West Hartford resident David Benoit joins us now. He's co-founder of a device that could help you in that situation when you can't access your phone. David, welcome to Where We Live. Thank you very much for having me. Did I say your name right? You absolutely (laughs) did, yes. So you live in West Hartford. Um, Tell me about how you got interested in coming up with a device to help people when they need to um, call 911. Sure. So about four and a half years ago, my co-founder and I, Phil Giancarlo, we're sitting around sort of looking at, you know, possibly what we could do as the next chapter in our lives. As both Connecticut residents, we were intimately aware of some of the very tragic events that have happened in here, in particular uh, looking at what happened in the Treasure Invasion. Mm-hmm. And we were, we were trying to figure out, um, you've got these, these amazing devices, right, in your pocket that people have accepted into their lives, these amazing communication tools. Uh, and much like the family in Cheshire, those, those devices weren't, Weren't, you weren't able to use them in a, in, a, in a time of need, in a distress event, right? And, and so they've got these amazing little features. about They know where you are. They know how fast you're going. They can take pictures. They can record sound. And they can, you know, even send out messages, right? But the problem is in a distress event, when somebody needs to call for help, the ability to reach for that phone or get to that phone or tactically operate that touchscreen phone is very difficult. People refer to that as fight or flight, right? When you're, when you're stressed and you need to call for help, uh, acute stress response is mm-hmm. a more technical term. The problem is, is that the blood comes from your fingers, right? And it goes to the heart and the head and says, okay, we're going to do something. So your ability to use that phone, reach for that phone is very limited. So we kind of tried to solve this problem of, you know, an amazing communication tool, but very difficult to use in times of need. So we really set out to sort of, you know, solve three problems. One was how can we make it really easy for somebody to call for aid, right? Using the capabilities of that phone, but not having to sort of operate it manually. The other is how do we educate those people who are receiving alert and, and understanding what is going on with this person? 
And then the third thing we tried to solve was how do we then communicate that to people who are professionally trained to provide a response? And so after four and a half years, uh, what we have in front of us and what we'll, we have already started rolling out in 2016 is a platform that we call WearSafe. And you have WearSafe in the studio with us. It's actually a pretty small device. Can it you is. describe uh, what it does? Sure. WearSafe really is a platform. It's a service. We provide a service that people can activate to, to call the friends that they trust, right? The friends and family that know them the best. And, and, and by doing that, by activating the service, we needed to show them, well, this is how it can be done. And our first product is a product called the WearSafe Tag. And in essence, it's a little wearable panic button, right? It's discreet. It can be worn um, under clothing. It can be, you know, carried in a, in a pocketbook or, or a pocket or on a keychain. And so pressing that little device is, is the activator. And, and it can talk to the phone, your phone, from over 200 feet away using uh, technology that we refer to as Bluetooth low energy. So it uses very little battery life on both the phone and the device and can send a message that says, hey, I'm feeling uh, distressed and I need help. And I can press that little button and basically it tells the phone to go do your job. Use WearSafe to now send out this alert to your friends and family that you decide. And and, and also it it allows you to sort of know when the call for aid went out. So we... So when the phone does its job, it gives that little device that may be in your hand or in your pocket or underneath a blouse a little tactile vibration that says, yep, phone's doing its job. And, and so as, a, as we were able to sort of develop this technology, we really did it under the covers. We were very quiet about that. We attracted a lot of interest from, from very high-profile security experts, mm-hmm. folks who were former Secret Service and, and CIA agents and Navy SEALs who said, hey, what are you doing over there? And he said, well, we're just developing this thing. Hey, I'd like to be part of that, and I'd like to help you guys perfect this. And so one of the real things that, that, that we learn from them is, is, is when you're in distress, one of the things that really helps increase the likelihood of a positive outcome is the reassurance that somebody's coming, the reassurance that somebody knows what's happening to you. Uh, and, and so we get a series of vibrations in that little device that only you can feel and nobody else can hear. Mm-hmm. And every vibration is, is one person who knows exactly where you are and is coming to your aid. So walk me through this. So it's uh, for our listeners at home. So this device is this little white. Uh, it could probably fit in the palm of your hand. You can wear that. So if someone were to come into my home, yeah. um, whether I'm hiding in the closet or if this person, I don't have my phone near me or they might take my phone away from me, how would I, by pressing this button, connect to someone to help me again? Sure. So again, it works from over 200 feet away. So if you happen to be in your bedroom, with a little device and your phone was charging in the kitchen, you heard a noise, you press that button. And what that does is it sends a signal to your phone where the WearSafe app is living. Mm-hmm. And the WearSafe app says, okay, I know whose phone this is, and I'm going to send out a message to that person's pre-selected family and friends. And why that's important is that statistics show that there's no more than four people in your life that know your baseline. They know when you wake up, they know when you're going to work, when you're exercising on vacation. And they know you very intimately. And that's very important because when there's an event that needs attention, they're able to sort of see an outlier. And so the, you can get eyes on a situation very quickly. So your friends and family get an alert. We also get send them an email. And they also get a text. So we get eyes on the situation. But the most important thing about our product is we provide audio from the scene. Because just knowing where somebody is and that they're, I'm using air quotes, in trouble isn't enough especially if that person is where they're supposed to be. 
So my version of I'm in trouble may be different from yours, or I have an 11-year-old daughter who uses WearSafe. Her version of in trouble is uh, much different, right? So the way that we, that we provide the information to those people is through the audio. And as a radio host, you know the power of sound. Your brain's ability to process what it heard is much better than its ability to process what it saw. Is that dress gold or is it blue? I don't know. But I, can, I know this person and I'm listening to what's happening to that person. And I know that that, that, that person's baseline. I can very easily realize that this person is in trouble is this a situation where I can help because I'm proximately located to them? Or is this a situation where really you know, professional first responders need to come in? Now I've got all this amazing information that's coming into my phone about where the person is, what their medical conditions are, what's happening to them. Uh, and can communicate that to first responders. So there's a microphone on that little wear safe? No, there's not. We wanted to make sure that we didn't replicate the amazing features that are already inherent in your smartphone. And so, you know, Facebook did a study a couple years ago, 92 or 94 percent of the time that phone's within two or three feet of you. We wanted to make sure that that use case was obtained through our device, and then we went farther. So 200 feet is roughly from the end zone to the 50-yard line of of a football field. Find me a college student that is, you know, over 200 feet away from their phone, and I'll, I'll show you an anomaly. And so you said you've been rolling this out. How's it been working? What's been the response? The response has been amazing. I mean, we, we were very quiet about doing this. We wanted to get it right. You know, we didn't want to put this out prematurely. Uh, we, were, we were told many times that we were East Coasting this product to death, which meant that we were taking our time and being very obsessive about it. And, and so we were slow to roll it out. Right now we have shipped product to over 30 countries. Uh, we've shipped product to over 250 college campuses and over 50 states. And so, you know, the, 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 the use cases that we get back from, from people who are using it are amazing. You know, people with autistic children who, you know, in the middle of the night can just press that button. Uh, soldiers who are, uh, you know, sort of suffering from PTSD and feel that, you know, I, I, I feel really bad. And they can press the button and let their buddies know. Um, you know, people who travel, people who are going back to college campuses to give their child that extra little sort of edge to say, you know what, if they find themselves alone, uh, this is a device for them. So we've we've just launched uh, our marketing campaign in the beginning of August and a tremendous response. Are there any concerns about privacy? One of the things that we had to make sure when we developed this product and we sat shoulder to shoulder with students from three different local universities who said, okay, if you're going to develop a product, one, it has to have a device because they all know that reaching for their phone, making a phone call, using an app on the phone isn't a very good use case and is very hard to do when you're distressed. Uh, But one of the things they said is that it has to not track me. I control when I locate, or right, I communicate to others where I am. And so the control about, hey, nobody's going to know where you are. Nobody's going to hear your situation until you decide. Well, we're getting a tweet from someone who said, through Kickstarter, I bought WearSafe Labs for my women running friends. She loves the idea. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great product, especially for folks. We really focused on, on not the negative, but the empowerment, right? The the ability for people to go out and live their lives, and that could be jogging at four in the morning, uh, mountain biking in on Avon Mountain by yourself, skiing by yourself, right? Going out and doing things by yourself, and knowing that your friends and family are there by your side. And if you ever needed to needed them, you know those are the people. Statistics show that when somebody's in need, they do not call nine one one. They will typically call a spouse or a best friend or a mother or father, who then communicates that to nine one one. 
I've called 911 three times for myself. And it was never, never for me, I was reporting something else. I was a bystander, or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, somebody who, who, was, who was an eyewitness to something. Uh, so, 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 so really the ability to go out and do things that you want, knowing that we can give that information about you instantly to those friends and family who know you the best, who can make a decision to either help you themselves or bring on first responders. I'm talking with David Benoit, West Hartford resident and co-founder of Where Safe Labs. You know, you've said you've been in development uh, for about four, four and a half years. Right. Um, when incidents like what happened in Orlando in that nightclub, um, when that happened, did you think about what it would be like for those people that were uh, locking themselves in the bathroom uh, uh, while that shooter was there? Absolutely, absolutely. I, I can't even begin to put myself into that situation, but we looked at the use case of it took hours for people on the outside or first responders to know what's going on inside. Uh, the ability to be very discreet about saying, hey, I'm here and this is what's happening and I need help. So the ability for somebody who was locked in a restroom or, you know, locked under, you know, hiding from somebody could press a button. And, 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 our, and when you press that button, nothing happens to your phone. So we do not call attention to the phone. Everything happens at the back end. So, yeah, the ability to get that information directly into the hands of first responders, we were absolutely thinking about. It. And it's unfortunate in this day and age, you know, you can turn on the TV, you listen to the radio. I mean, there's no shortage of situations where people find themselves in situations where, you know, they can't call for help or they can't get aid in time. And, and those that are coming onto the scene just don't have any knowledge. They're, they have no information to go off of. And, and that's a real problem these days. Um, you know, people take for granted that they can call 911 and that service is there. This is something that someone has to purchase. Is it something that's um, fairly affordable? It is. So we, we looked long and hard and, and, and sat with our board of directors and, and made a very important decision a couple of months ago. This is a device that uh, costs us money to produce. Uh, it's an expensive device and it's probably the most sophisticated device that's ever been developed. But we looked at it as a hurdle, right? It is the very first uh, modality for us to activate that device. And so we made a decision to give it away for free. We feel so confident about our product that we're actually going to ship it to you for free. We're going to give it to you for free. and We're going to let you try it out for 30 days. And we really feel strongly that security should be affordable for everybody, right? And so to use the service, which the service saves our life, is only $5 a month. I want to thank David Benoit, West Hartford resident and co-founder of WearSafe Labs. He and his business partner, Phil Giancarlo, created this wearable tag that connects with your smartphone. We'll have more information on our website at wmpr.org slash where we live. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This is Where We Live.